It's always good to start a sermon series with a quote from a, a great rapper, Tupac Shakur. Uh, he said, only God can judge me. He said many other expletives after that, so I had to reduce this down to this, but only God can judge me. And that's kind of our attitude today as well, right? Only God can judge me. Now, many people in our culture don't believe in a monotheistic God. They believe in many gods, that they're a God, that something else is a God, higher power. They wouldn't ascribe the same deity. Maybe that Tupac is ascribing. Only God can judge me. Maybe today the the modern feel is no one can judge me. You can't judge me at all. It's people that don't believe in the Bible that love to throw out, and, and Christians as well, we love to throw out that verse. You know, Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. That's not really what the verse is talking about, but we don't have time to get into that this morning. This is our, the air we breathe. You can't judge me. You can't judge me. And we think it's a very modern breath that we are so enlightened that we're the ones that got culture to this point. But actually, this is a very old idea. In the 7th century BC or 8th century BC, this was the same attitude. And it was the attitude of the people of God, the Jewish people. This is what they're feeling. Only God can judge me. Let me bring you into the context of the book of Micah. So at that moment in the world... The Assyrians are beginning to take over everything. Like they're just marching through kingdom, whopping it off, bringing them into their kingdom, making everyone Assyrians, continuing on. So that's going on. And yet at this time, the people of God, the Jewish people, are just hanging out saying it's all good. Like life is great. Now Israel as a whole is broken up into two groups. This is important to know as you read the Old Testament, especially, that 11 tribes called the Northern Kingdom would be Israel. The one tribe that would be called the Southern Kingdom is Judah. So when they talk about Israel, we're talking about the 11 tribes. When we talk about Judah, we're talking about that tribe of Judah. These were representatives from the line uh, of Jacob. Okay, These were tribes that were from Jacob. So here's what's going on. Samaria... Samaria was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. In Samaria, man, they were so wealthy. They're making it rain all day long. Like, they don't need anything. They're living a very lavish, lush, posh, cribs type of life. Is cribs a thing anymore? Probably not. I'm outdating myself. That's okay. Pretend like it is. Really, really contextual and awesome. So, that's what's going on in Samaria. In Jerusalem and Judah... They had just experienced 52 years of peace and prosperity under King Uzziah's leadership. So between Israel, Northern Kingdom, Judah, Southern Kingdom, everything is good. Everything is grand. Life is wonderful. But the problem in all of this is that Israel and Judah did whatever they wanted. Now that might not be a problem to you, but it was a problem to God because they were the people of God. And they were supposed to live a certain way because God already had given them an identity. And because they had an identity, they were supposed to live out of that identity. The problem was that they weren't doing that. They were doing whatever they wanted. The worship of God was very specific in how they were supposed to engage with God. And they just added to it. They would say like, yeah, yeah, we wear the monotheistic tag. We've got that badge. But in our back pocket, we have other gods that we would turn to and rely on. It was like they were superstitious. 
that they had the big God, the big guy in the sky was with them, but they've got these other little things, horoscopes, good luck, you know, cross both fingers, do all these things to make sure that if the big guy in the sky didn't come through for them, that's not how they thought of him, by the way, but if he didn't come through for them, that they were going to be okay because these other little gods were around. They had perverse worship. They weren't really worshiping the true and living God anymore. So they had an incorrect relationship vertically with God. They also had an incorrect horizontal relationship with one another. Injustice ruled the day. They were unjust to one another. They were beating each other up. They were taking one another's stuff. They were robbing from the poor so that they could become rich. This was not a society where God's name was revered. And people were looking in on the people of God saying, man, how can I be a part of that? They're saying, if that's what God's people look like, we want out. We'll surrender to the Assyrians. We want nothing to do with that God. You see, the attitude that was driving them is, don't judge me. You can't judge me. God won't judge me, so you don't judge me. Uh, Jeff Wright sent me a text this week with a picture on the back of an 18-wheeler truck saying, Something to the effect of God's not mad at you. Essentially, God's not going to judge you. So Tupac says, only God can judge me. And the world says, no, but there is no God to judge you. He's not mad. And if there is a God, he definitely loves you. You are for sure a unique snowflake. You are meant to be warm and comfy, cozy with him. And you can do you. You do whatever you want. God doesn't have a great plan for your life. It's your plan that God would love to get behind. So here we go. This is the context of what's going on inside of 8th century Israel and Judah. And so God sends his word to Micah. Micah chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. I just want to stop here. This is amazing that God is speaking to us. God doesn't just let us like, ah, oh, they'll screw it up on their own. Like, let them, let them have at it. God interjects truth into chaos. So the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Some of you have a hard time reading the Bible, believing that the Bible is true, believing that it has any historical relevance. And it's verses like this that are amazing because it just could have said like the word of the Lord came to Micah, but instead the word comes at a specific time that you could go to the history books and actually find these kings, that they were here, that these things took place, that this were real events that Micah was speaking about before they actually took place. So that's just a little extra. But Micah, Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? Yahweh is the, the name for God. Who is like God? So in this culture that wanted all these other gods, Micah, just by putting out his name, says, but who is, who is there like God? He's a prophet. Prophets were strange. If you read the prophets, you're probably confused a lot of the time because they're speaking truths into a specific context. And yet also we're benefiting from the big truths that we find inside of those contexts. But the big idea is that a prophet spoke God's plans to God's people. And he spoke God's heart to the world. Now Micah's words wouldn't be welcomed by the people he was speaking to. Micah's words might not be welcomed by you during this series this morning. 
But here's my prayer. Over the past couple weeks, I've been praying that the message of Micah would undo you. That the message of Micah would undo you. And that you would allow for the Lord to remake you the way that he wants to remake you. Because he'll remake you for what is best. So we're going to see God as judge in just a second. You might not like the idea of God as judge, and that's okay. See, we don't like the idea of of a judge or authority until we're on the receiving end of injustice. If you're beat up, you want justice. Someone breaks in and takes your stuff, you want justice. There was a a 14-year-old girl, I don't know how long ago this happened, but in Barcelona, the verdict was put out this week that she had been raped by five grown men and they were not charged on rape. There wasn't enough evidence because she was passed out during the whole encounter. And so they let these guys get off with so much of a lesser sentence. Our hearts scream out injustice. I heard a what? Like, we can't believe it. See, we don't like the idea of God as judge until we're the ones on the receiving end of injustice. Then we want someone to step up and bring justice to the forefront. But the reality of what's going on in Micah is that God's actually the one on the receiving end of injustice. Maybe you don't think of God like that. God is the one that's being treated unfairly, unjustly. And here are the words that he has to say. So with this, we can start Micah. And we're going to enter into a courtroom scene. So this whole first chapter is like we're being brought into the courtroom with God as, as judge. So the three movements of this this morning is going to be the judge arrives, the judge sentences, and the response. Judge arrives, judge sentences, our response. Here we go. Micah 1, 2 to 4. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. This is verse 2. So here, here is a summons to court. This would be like an all rise. You know, you get served with the affidavit. You have to be brought in. But then it's also the idea that you're rising up, that there's someone worthy of your attention that's walking in. When a judge walks into the court, everyone has to stand up and give him reverence because he's about to bring justice, hopefully. The holy temple is God's chambers. Judges hang out in the chambers. Someone says, I'll rise. Judge walks out. Same thing going on here. Everyone pay attention. Pay attention. God of the universe is coming and he's going to bring a verdict over something. What's amazing here is that we have this God who could be hanging out in his holy chambers forever, not really caring about what's going on, but instead he condescends and comes onto the ground floor of what's going on so that he can bring justice to those who are in the midst of injustice. He can correct the wrongs and make them right. That God actually cares about the day-to-day. God actually cares about the things that you're going through. I've heard many people say, I don't want to pray for these things because God really only wants to deal with my big stuff. God cares about every aspect of your life. He cares about the ways that you're treated poorly. He cares about the way you treat others poorly. He cares about the way that people are are taking things from you and the way that you're taking things from other people. He cares about this. He sees all and knows all. This is both encouraging and fearful, isn't it? 
It's encouraging to know that we have a God that, that sees the wrongs that are done to us, but also fearful because he sees the wrongs that we do to others. Let me explain to you a little bit of who God is according to the Bible. God is holy, which means that God is other. He is, he is unlike us and yet like us. We were made in his image, but, but we are marred, aren't we? And he's not. He's perfect, so he's holy. He's other. We have all sinned against him. I haven't met anyone that said, no, I'm, I'm sinless. I'm perfect. I'm anyone in their right mind, honestly, Right? That we know that we're, we're, we do things we shouldn't do. We do things and we don't want anyone else to find out about it. Ultimately, these things are against God. God made us for him. God made us to live in relationship with him. That we would enjoy him only. And that means we also get to enjoy his stuff, but in a way that we're not worshiping, giving ourselves over to his stuff, but rather we use his stuff in a way that's honoring to him. We've all sinned against him. We've all sinned against him either in sins of omission, things we should have done but didn't do, or sins of commission, things we shouldn't have done but we did. And it's not just things we do. Sin is also thought and motive. So you might know someone that gives lots of money to charity, but they might not really be giving to charity. They might be giving so that they get a reduction in taxes or so that they feel really good about themselves and they get a building named after them or a little brick somewhere or something. Right? It's so easy to give to ourselves by giving to others. So God is saying it's even the motive. You can do the right thing with the wrong motive and that's still sin. And because God is holy, justice and punishment needs to be dealt. Hear that. Because God is a good, perfect judge, justice and punishment needs to be dealt. God is not a judge that will turn a blind eye. God's not a judge that's saying, yeah, just do whatever you want for a little bit of time. I won't look at that. Because he's so good, justice and punishment will be dealt. And yet God is perfectly loving. We see this tension, don't we? That God is perfectly loving and perfectly just. And we love God to be just when there are things done against us and we want God to be loving when we've done things against others. Don't we? We love to set up a world like that. But God can't be loving and just if he excuses any sin, even yours. So there's no act of injustice done against you that's going to go unpunished. That's loving, isn't it? But there's also no act of injustice you do that will go unpunished. That's justice. Love and justice wrapped up in this judge. And so God is coming in the book of Micah to do something about the false worship and injustice that was happening at Micah's time. So there's this call to all rise. Right? I thought about having you do that, but I thought that would be cheesy, so don't do it. Uh, verse 3 and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. When God comes, this is epic. Really. We use that word epic so often and it loses its meaning. But this is epic because when God comes down, as if God had a body, he doesn't, he is spirit. 
But when God comes down and steps onto creation, it melts under his weight. Mount Everest takes so many lives, right? Since things are melting, they're finding bodies that have been stuck in the ice. There are places where you're climbing Everest and they call it a certain thing by the color of the boot of the guy that's dead there. Everest takes lives every single year. And what we get here is a picture of God stepping down on Everest and it just crumbling. What happens if we have this view of who God is? Do we see God like this? Often not. We think that he's a God to be spoken to when we need a new job or we want our, our spouse to think correctly about a situation more like us or we want a promotion or we want a spouse or we want advancement or we want this for our neighborhood or we want whatever. We think that he's like a genie almost to be interacted with so that we receive our thing or he's also a God that we just hang out with in our little quiet time. But rarely do we think of God coming and being able to step on buildings and crush them in an instant, stepping on Mount Royal and causing that to become like a plane. God is a mountain melter. God is powerful, he's mighty, he's not to be trifled with. He's not to be played around with. The high places that Micah speaks about has uh, two things that we could say about it. First, high places were a strategic military position. You think about the war in Afghanistan. It was really difficult. Why? Because there's mountains. It's cold. When you're hanging out up at the top of a mountain, you can protect your place pretty well. These are impenetrable places. What Micah is saying is that God can break in wherever he wants. There's no place that you're safe from God. There's no place that you can hole up. Even if you say, I'm going to build a a callousness, a barrier around my heart, God can't get in, but he can. There's no place you're safe from God. None. You can't keep him out. The second thing about these high places is that they were places of worship for false gods. They were places where the people of God would go out to, to worship false gods. And you know what's sad is that it was actually God's kings that set up these false places of worship. So it'd be like, you know, Jordan having a, a, a cow, a gold cow, and me having a gold rooster or something, I don't know. My mind went to France soccer for a second, right? And I was having these, these things and we're saying, yes, we're going to worship God right now during our time. But afterwards, you can go to Theater 9 and we're going to worship the gold cow. And then you can go down to Place des Arts and we're going to worship the golden rooster. It'll be great. There's no food here during this time, but there'll be food there, right? They'll provide for you. This is what the kings did. Look at what King Solomon did. First Kings 11, 6 to 8. It's amazing that God writes this about his people. The Bible is not to show how amazing God's people are. It's to show how amazing he is. It says, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to They're gods. 
Solomon was marrying outside of the people of God and then was saying, oh, you're into those gods? Fine, I'll be into those gods too. Instead of leading the nations to God, he allowed for the people of God to be led to the nations away from who God really is. Next king after Solomon. This is actually where the northern and southern kingdoms break off. Fun facts for the day. Um, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So this is Jeroboam. Yeah, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Um, the, The names list were very limited in that day, all right? And you have Jeroboam that's trying to vie for the kingdom. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Jeroboam's trying to take over. And so here's what he does. So the king took counsel. He made two calves of gold. He said to the peoples, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's showing them false gods and saying, these ones are actually responsible for your deliverance and redemption. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. So Jeroboam sets up false gods so that he could keep power. So Solomon does to please his wives and ends up leading a bunch of people astray. Jeroboam sets up more false gods so he can keep power. And then this guy Josiah comes and he wipes him out. This is awesome. 2 Kings 23. The king defiled the high places that were at the east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashereth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars, cut down the Asherim, filled their places with the bones of men. What else do you fill him with? Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high places erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. In 2 Kings 23, you can read all the things he did. I wanted to read the whole chapter, but we just don't have time. So Josiah makes this new start. Removed all the high places. No more are the people of God going to worship there. Ah, then Josiah's kids ruined it. Uh, Jehoahaz, however you say it, was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. Like three months. How do you screw it up in three months? His mother's name was Amital, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. Crap. Right? This is what we do. This is what we do. They couldn't kick the habit of worshiping false gods. Either they didn't see their mistakes so they just didn't care what they were doing anymore because they had the mantra only God can judge me they're clearly breaking God's command and they keep setting up idols and we look at this and we're like silly kings how do you screw this up in three months I bet you and I could do it I bet you and I could screw it up quicker than that you see we look at this with a bit of a snobbery like I wouldn't do that But that's exactly what we do. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said our hearts are idol factories. That we might say, I am here to worship the one and true God. In our hearts, we're thinking about what we want to worship later on today or what we want to worship tomorrow or 10 years from now. We're deciding what we want to sacrifice and give our lives over to for our satisfaction. Here are a few idols. Career. How many people lose their families on the altar of career? Lots. Family. 
You'll do anything to have a family that you'll even go around what God wants for the family to be so that you can have one. Comfort. You'll do anything for comfort. You'll use anyone. You'll, you'll not do what you're supposed to do so that you can have comfort. Love. Some of you are in love with the idea of love. Read St. Augustine. Read his confessions. If you're in love with the idea of love, read him. It will shatter you. Because you're after love and you miss the one who actually loves you with an infinite, perfect love. But moving on, some of you love power and you'll do anything to finally be in a position where you can have the final say. Some of you will give anything just to be noticed. You'll give up all morality, all ethics, just so someone will finally notice you. We're just like them. We are just like them them the people heard Micah and thought amen up to this point they're thinking amen God is coming against our enemies see I've been giving you insight on what's going on but if you just read those words God hasn't yet said that who he's coming against God's coming has always been a good thing. Yes, God is coming. He's going to destroy our enemies. Right? They do little dances. You know, God drowned the Egyptians in the sea. Da, 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 da. Right? They develop all these things because God's coming is a good thing. But here we go. Chapter 1, verse 5. This thing shut off again, FYI. Here we go. Micah 1, 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? There we go. So God is saying, you are the wicked ones. You thought it was about someone else, didn't you? No, it's you. You're the wicked ones. The judge comes and he says, you're already guilty. You're already convicted. I am the witness. I've seen it all happen. You have been sinning. This word sin means falling short of God's standard. You are inadequate. You can't be in my presence. But God was so gracious that he made sacrifices and ways for sinners to be able to be in his presence. But the second word, transgression, means rebellion against God's commands. This is a willful Desiring not to change. So imagine the little kid that you're just like, I'm going to put you in your room for the afternoon. They're like, hmm. I am going to remove supper. Hmm. I'm going to burn all the televisions. Hmm. I'm going to remove your two feet. Hmm. You know, it's like, what is going to get through to you? I've never said that, by the way. But like, what is going to get through to you? This is transgression. And there are consequences for this. This is where I want you to like really stick with me to the end. There are consequences for this. And here we have it in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Destruction of this posh city. 
Now, when they heard this, I guarantee that they laughed. <laughs> not here. That's not, no, you must be speaking about Samarina, like the other town over. Nope, got it right. Pronounce it right. You, this place is going to be laid waste. And we find out that this happens. In 2 Kings, chapter 17, verse 6 to 18. This is a longer passage, but I, I want for you to see that God promises something and that it comes true. I want you to see where the society had gone and why God would come and destroy this type of place. In the ninth year, the king of Hashea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, in the cities of Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They for themselves, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. They had so many chances saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an asher and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That's weighty. They wanted to be like the nations. They wanted to be just like their first parents, Adam and Eve. They wanted to be their own God. They had created society in the name of God, but they were actually their own gods. They, they created a society where anything goes, at least anything that we find permissible. And they made the unthinkable a reality and created arguments for it to back it up. They burned children in idol worship. And they said, this is okay because the gods need to be appeased and need to be atoned in this way. So it's actually a good thing for us as a society that we're willing to kill our children. It made sense to their culture. It made sense to their culture. You see, our culture kills children too. We call it something different, but we do the same thing. We look at a scripture like this and we're horrified. How would you actually do that? And yet we as a culture do exactly the same thing. This isn't a political thing, it's a theological thing. 
We've created arguments for it as a society as well. But theologically, here's the reality, that God gives life. In fact, it says that he knits life together inside of the womb. God does this. And we, like little gods, take it. Let me take your knitting project, Lord. That's mine. I'm in charge of this piece, not you. You created it to happen, but I'm stopping it from happening. We play God, and we're very good at it. We give our reasons, but what if? But don't you think, isn't it? We don't start with God. We start with us. It's primarily for us and our glory. Not for God. And this is a silent genocide that's taking place. And not just outside of the church, but in the church. We're destroying women and children. Not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. I told you, this isn't political, this is theological. I read some studies this week showing how when we kill children and the women who go through that, that it's okay, it doesn't impact them. These are all quantitative studies. I also read quantitative studies that said, no, it has a huge impact. So who's right? When I do qualitative studies, though, I sat with a friend. We were new Christians, and uh, she had driven me to the church building in Maine uh, where we used to live, and we were talking about whatever, and, uh, and somehow she brought up um, that she had an abortion before she was a follower of Jesus. And she just started weeping. I said, what, what's wrong? She's like, I don't think that I can ever move past this. I don't think God will ever forgive me for this. I understand God has forgiven me and I'm, I'm saved, but I don't think this part can ever be forgiven. I sat with another uh, woman. I did social work before um, planting a church and uh, her and I worked with kids and we had to stay up all night and she came to me one night and we usually just, everything was separate, do our own work and she came to me one night and said, could I talk to you for a few minutes? This was at 11 p.m. The conversation stopped at like 6.30 a.m. And she said, I'm pregnant. And she said, I, I don't believe the same thing that you believe. She said, but I, I sense like what is in me is so much more than just this little clump that I sense it is so much more. We got to talk about who God is and what he does, how he rescues and how he protects. And we got to talk about a whole host of things. But for her, she couldn't imagine having to make this decision without a lifetime of guilt following her and shame. I've talked to so many women that have had this happen and who've said, I I wish I could have it back. I want to say if that's you, there's hope. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But we're missing the fact that this ends the life of little people made in the image of God. We're willing to sacrifice people made in the image of God for our goals or for our agenda. For what we, what we want to see happen. We play God. We're not representing him at all. Not at all. This can't be part of the people of God. I'm not speaking about the world. I'm speaking about us. This can't be part of us. We don't get to play God. And God is going to come for justice. Every single little child that is killed, 
God will take justice for because he cares about them. He cares about them. This is the thing that drove God nuts. And now the response. They've been sentenced. Micah says this. For this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, Jerusalem. How does Micah respond? Good. It's about time you destroyed those people. I've been waiting, Lord. Instead, he weeps and laments. The type of weeping and lamenting he does is loud. Jackals and ostriches are not quiet beasts. Right? What does the fox say? We haven't figured that out yet. But what ostriches and jackals do is loud. This is the type of mourning that Micah was going into when he heard about the judgment that was coming onto his people. Grieving. He takes off his clothes. This is the highest form of grieving that you can do. It seems weird and awkward to our culture. Don't grieve this way at my house. But this is the deepest grieving that you can do. You have nothing else to tear. When you're upset, when you don't know what to do, you just start ripping things. Right? You watch a little kid who's grieving and they try and pull their hair out when they can't express what they want to do. Israelites would rip their clothes. And the grieving's to the point where there's nothing left to rip. The judgment is irreversible. People that Micah knew and loved were going to be destroyed. Do you you hear that? The people that Micah knew were going to be destroyed. Now this judgment is the, the, the first chapter of a greater, more intense judgment that's gonna come. See, this is where Micah connects to our world. Let me read it. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the end of time as we understand it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We find out earlier in the Bible that the only way to get your name written in the book of life is by trusting Jesus. So if we don't trust Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, our name doesn't end up there. This is not a works-based thing. All right, did you do more good works than bad works? Okay, I'll let you in. It's, are you perfect? There's only one that's been perfect. And if you didn't receive what he did for you in your place, the judgment that you and I would receive is eternal. 
lake of fire, Revelation 21.8, the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, all their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This, This real judgment is coming. And what's worse is that some of us will be surprised by it. Like the Israelites were surprised with Micah's sermon. Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, something we don't talk much about is that hell is real. We aren't universalists. We don't believe that everything's going to work out fine in the end. We believe that God is going to be enjoyed by his people and he's going to get glory, but that this is real and that you weren't made for it. You weren't made for hell. Hell was made for Satan and his demons. And yet we made ourselves for it. We made ourselves for it by trusting in other things other than God. This suffering is eternal. Separation from God, the one you were made for. Alone. Death. That's the future. And the reality is that almost everyone that you meet in this city is going to be there. I don't say that in an arrogant way at all. I say that with great pain in my heart. That almost everyone that we meet in the city will be there. And if you were to leave here right now with this message, you'd be mocked. You'd be laughed at. Oh, you've been duped by, by the religious people. Oh, you actually believe that. Your friends who have names, your coworkers, your family, your kids, your spouse, your neighbor, you. This is the reality. An eternal death forever. Torment, destruction, separation. The cities mentioned in verses 10 through 16 are ones that are in the path of destruction. We can't get into all those. But their future was to be exile. Their future was to be exile. And our friends and coworkers and neighbors, their future is to be exile. And what do we do? Well, I don't want to be the weird, awkward religious guy or gal at the office, so I, I just don't say anything. I talk about Kanye West and his album and maybe that he's a follower of Jesus now and I hope that maybe they'll think that Christianity is cool somehow and want to be a Christian just like me but I'll let Kanye's album talk to them, not me. See, being on mission isn't trendy. It's not cool. Being on mission is going to involve lots of suffering. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be called a moron. You're going to be called a zealot. Maybe someone would even kill you because they don't want to hear that. Christianity has never been cool. But it's eternal. And it's not about the religion, it's about Jesus. 
You see, we are on mission because a permanent exile is coming to the city. Do you weep over the city? I'm afraid that our church is this very nice, neat-necked, theologically stoic group. That we hear things like, 199 out of 200 people in the city are going to experience an eternal suffering. And we're like, theologically, check. That matches my theology. I tried to explain this sermon. I asked the Lord to help me keep it together this morning. My preaching, I don't like to cry or be emotional. I like to just present stuff. I tried explaining the sermon to my wife this week. And it was like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how this ends. And, and I started talking about our neighbors and our friends. And the realization came that they're going to spend all of their eternity away from God. And I just, I just wept. I wept and that's not a thing like, oh, well, good for you. You wept. It's me, I think me getting a, a small piece of God's heart for the city that we would hear this and look at people and that we would weep. And then I got on the subway the next day and I started looking around the, the metro and I had to like contain myself because I was ready to start weeping again. Because all of these people are going to experience a Christless eternity. And Christ put me and you here. Not to get to say, look at how awesome I am, be like me. But to say, I was supposed to be judged I was the object of the wrath of God, but, but I'm not any longer, and you don't need to be any longer, and I found enjoyment, and I found life. I have value, meaning, and purpose that no one can take away, and I'm brought back in a relationship with the one who made me for him. Do you weep over our city? Do you feel God's heart a little bit? A little bit. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this? What can we do? Nothing. You can do absolutely nothing about this reality except to call to people to hear. Remember that little word in verse two? Hear. Hear. What do we want them to hear? Well, 700 years later after Micah came, God came down. God came down. And God didn't come down on a mountain smushing Everest. God came down as a humble baby. God came down as a person of Jesus. And as God incarnate, Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he lived a perfect life, unlike you and I. But he was tempted in every way you and I are tempted, yet he overcame those. God had no high places. Jesus had no high places in his heart where he went and worshiped secretly. He had no high places he ran to, to worship. He had no false worship at all. And he spoke more about hell than about much else. He spoke more about judgment that was coming than about much else. And then he he spoke about his life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Judgment is coming, but you can find life in me. You can find life in me. See, Jesus did all that God wanted him to do. All of it. Never committed a sin. Never had a transgression. He was judged pure and blameless without error. And he came to Jerusalem for the final time. He looked over the city and what did he do? He wept. He was weeping over the city. 
But his weeping wasn't one without hope. His weeping was one out of compassion for the people that didn't yet know who God really was. His weeping was one of of confidence that what he was going to do was going to make a way. But his weeping was also one of sadness. See, instead of running from the city and what was coming, Jesus marched into the city. And Jesus going into Jerusalem was like him walking into the Colosseum. And he wasn't welcomed. Last year I got to go to Rome, got to go into the Colosseum and see where gladiators would walk in and not leave again. And Jesus like that walked in through this big gate of life, never to walk back out of that city. You see, he, was, he walked into the city sentenced to die. He was stripped. He was beaten beyond human semblance. You couldn't even tell he was a human anymore. He was so beaten. And he was crucified. You see, that prophecy made to through Micah, that God was going to come down on the mountains. God came down and crushed Jesus. God came down and, and killed Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and he endured the full cup of the wrath of God. Your judgment, the judgment of everyone in this city, Jesus takes it and he drinks it on the cross. For us. For us. Jesus was exiled into death so that we could be forgiven. You can't be forgiven on your own. Jesus' death is the only way to be forgiven. And he took our transgression on the cross. All of it. All of it. There's nothing you have ever done that was kept off of that cross. Remember my friend? I don't know if God can ever forgive me for doing that. For having that abortion. Well, of course he can. Jesus wore that on the cross. Jesus wore your lies. Jesus wore your sexual sins. Jesus wore your false worship. Jesus wore everything on the cross so that you can be forgiven. He took all the judgment and he's available to enjoy right now. You see, we were made for him. So what can we do? Well, we go and we tell that a final judgment is coming that we don't actually have to face. Do you get that? We get to go and we get to tell there's a final judgment that's coming, but you don't have to face it. Jesus already faced it for you. Jesus has brought you into his family. Jesus has given you a new future, an eternity with him. He talks about like building a house onto his house. Right? Jesus wants to be close to you. He's not embarrassed by you. And there's hope for all who will turn to him. Do you hear that? There's hope for all who will turn to him. This is our confident position. But we also weep. We also weep. Because final judgment is coming for those who refuse Jesus. You see, one day every knee will bow by faith or by force and acknowledge that Jesus is king and those who bow by faith will be brought into his presence and those who bow by force will be sent off from him forever. As I was trying to describe to Jenny what this morning should be like, I said, you know, the field should be like a Christian funeral. I've never been to a Christian funeral where at the end everyone's like, yeah! There's an excitement in a sense, because we, we know that this person who is no longer really there 
is with Jesus. But yet there's epic sadness as well because we're not get to, going to get to enjoy them in the same way anymore. That how should our hearts feel this morning? Well, our hearts should be thankful. If you know Jesus, they should be full of thankful, thankfulness because Jesus came into the Colosseum, experienced a judgment for you. But our hearts should also be full of great anguish and sorrow that your people are going to be removed. Paul said this about his people, that Montrealers will be removed from the presence of God. Quebecers will be removed from the presence of God. Canadians will be removed from the presence of God. So we have thankful hearts, hearts that are full of anguish and sorrow, yet hopeful hearts, because if Jesus can save someone like me, then he can save anyone. If Jesus can rescue someone like you, then he can rescue anyone. So how do we respond to this? Well, there are three things. If you're here, you don't know Jesus, and that he took your your judgment, you can receive that this morning. I've been praying for those of you that are coming, maybe for your first time ever, to a church gathering, that Jesus took your judgment for you. This morning, you can be forgiven of everything. You can be brought into God's family. He will keep you forever, and he will change you to look just like Jesus. We ask kids, who do you want to be like when you grow up? And they say silly answers. But in a sane moment, people would say, I want to be like Jesus. And God says, I'll make you just like Jesus. But you have to hear this, that your life won't all of a sudden be rosy and peachy and rainbows and unicorns and wonderful. It won't be that. It'll be hard because God is a good surgeon. I've never heard of anyone calling a surgeon wicked and evil that goes out and carefully cuts out a cancerous tumor from someone. Yet they cut them and cause them pain. You don't come out from you know, being put under and say, you wicked person, you cut me. It's like you thank them. Oh, you took out what was bad. That's what God's gonna do. He's gonna take out all that's bad. He's gonna make you just like Jesus. Secondly, maybe you're here and you're just spiritually sleepy. Would you, would you please wake up? Would you please wake up to, to where you live and the people around you? Would you ask God today, would you give me a heart that would weep for people because I, I don't have that. Would you give me a heart that sees people out of the lens that you see them with, not people to just interact with or consume for my benefit. Would you help me actually love them and care for them? Would you help me to, to be bold? Would you help me to be bold, weep for them and then tell them about the one who can rescue them? Would you wake up, please? Ask the Spirit to help you wake up. And third, some of you are hearing this and you're like, yes, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna tell everyone about Jesus. I'm gonna get a sign. I'm gonna like protest. I'm gonna go like, no. Don't try and do this in your own power. The spirit of God is going to do this. He's going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. But he's gonna do it in his time and his way. So our part in it is weeping, praying, showing what it looks like to be part of the people of God and then declaring when God gives us opportunity to speak about who he is, we do that because the stakes are far too high and maybe God would rescue that person through your words. I'm gonna pray. Lord, there's some sermons that we preach and I'm just so excited, fired up at the end and amazed and ready to jump up and down and and worship. And my heart's just sad this morning. 
My heart is thankful. Yes, you've rescued me. You've rescued so many of us here. But my heart is sad because the people that, that I love, the people of Quebec, the people of my ancestry, they don't know you. They think that they know you and they think that you are a part of their past. But Lord, would you break in? Would you allow for so many people in the city to become followers of you? Would you cause great revival and renewal to happen inside of your church that we wouldn't be sleepy, that we wouldn't think about ourselves, that we wouldn't be saying it's just all good because it's not. Lord, my heart is full of hope, even hope for those who are here that don't yet know you, that right now they would say to you, Jesus, forgive me, I need you and that they would be forgiven and brought into your kingdom. And today you would call them a follower of you. So much hope. Lord, help us to respond as you want us to. Lord, maybe today is a day where we need to weep over people. Maybe there are individuals that you put into our mind and we need to weep and we need to pray for them. And maybe for some of us, we've seen people that we've been weeping over for a while brought in to your kingdom. And so today's a day that we celebrate what you've done. But Lord, you know where we are. You know individually where we're at and you know what we need. Would you minister to us now? We love you and we need you for everything. Amen.